Elias Khoury is the author of 11 novels, including Little Mountain, Gates of the City, and The Journey of Little Gandhi. He is currently a professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at New York University and editor-in-chief of the literary supplement of Beirut's daily newspaper, An-Nahar. He lives in New York and Beirut. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. We're going to talk today uh, mostly about your most recent novel. In English. In English. Right. Entitled uh, Gate of the Sun. And my first question is, do you think this novel will save lives? This is a, this is a very, very uh, uh, big uh, uh, task you're asking from literature. But I think, I think good literature normally makes life more interesting. And in this sense, it's a kind of making it more possible. And making life more possible can save lives in the, lo in, in the long run. Yeah, perhaps in showing uh, English readers and Jewish English readers the similarities between the different peoples in, the, in Palestine? When you go deep to any human experience, you discover that there is something common between all the humans, which uh, politics and ideologies try to uh, to destroy, and to say that uh, that peoples and individuals are so different to the extent that uh, uh, one can kill the other or treat him not like a human. And <coughs> in a sense, when you go to the deep uh, to the deepest point of the Palestinian tragedy of 1948, which this novel tried to do, you are uh, you are showing that anyone in the world can identify with the victim. And one one of the most beautiful uh, uh, reactions to this novel was with uh, a student at New York University, where I teach, who is a young Israeli student. And he introduced himself to me, and he named himself Naji. And I asked him, what's this? He said, yes, I took the name of one of the characters of uh, Gate of the Sun. It is the story of a boy who was, who's, who was left by his parents in the forest when they were fleeing to, from, uh, from their village, where they will fi find him uh, later. And for an Israeli uh, uh, young man to identify with this Israeli, with this Palestinian boy, I think this is what all literature is about. When I read a novel, when I read a, a beautiful novel, a good, I, I never think of the nationalities of its characters. Either they are uh, human souls that reflects my soul, or it's a bad one. Yeah, I, I think reading all great literature speaks to universal human nature and uh I'm sure since you know since since the epic of Gilgamesh to to the Greek epics to the classic uh, to one thousand and one night to to the literature of we find beautiful literature in the Old Testament to uh, all speaks to us and of course going going to modern literature where I read the Dostoevsky I never think 
if Prince Mishkin radioed was a Russian, I feel that Prince Mishkin can be myself. I can be Prince Mishkin. And in this sense, literature speaks to what is a human, which actually religions fail to do. Religions, the way religions are manipulated, made them a, a, a tool in the hands of national, in the hands of, uh, of stupid ideas of pure identities. Whereas in literature, this cannot work. A literature that reflects pure identity is bad literature. I don't know any literature, any fascist literature, which is good. In, in, European, in the European tradition, uh, everybody, uh, when we speak about the emergence of the novel, we go back to Cervantes' uh, uh, work. In, in the chapter, in the chapter of, of his book, Cervantes will tell that the book is translated from Arabic, which is not true, of course, but which was a way to give the book the power of literature. So, so uh, to give literature power is clearly to say that it is not authentic, purely authentic. This is real authenticity that is to be opened the last analysis, to be human, to speak to a human nature. In the book, you have a paramedic who uh, tells stories much like in... Uh, 1,001 Yeah. Yes. I believe uh, one of the nurses or someone basically says to him, even though the, uh, the patient is unconscious or barely able to comprehend, continue to tell a story. Uh, telling stories since, since the beginning, I mean, 1001 Night, or, or as it's translated to English, Arabian Nights, which is a bad translation, by the way, of the title, is based upon this idea that telling stories is a way to overcome death. Telling stories is a way that knowledge will be able to overcome power. Telling stories is a way that the female will resist the power of the male. This is the whole story of Shahrazad and Shahrayar. And Shahrazad is the storyteller. So telling a story is creating something, is creating from the story something parallel to life, which is another version of life itself. And in this book, which is actually a love story, uh, my, my initial project and, and the outcome, I suppose, is a love story. I was I was trying to tell a story about love between man, man, a man and a woman. Yes, they meet in a cave. It's a yes. cross, cross. Uh, the, he has he has to cross the borders because uh, the Galilee they come from Galilee, and the wife was left behind. Galilee became Israel, and he 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 was a fugitive in Lebanon as a refugee. So he had to cross to to infiltrate the borders in order to meet the woman. He couldn't stay in the territory. No, 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 no he couldn't because because in the Israeli law was was very very strange. In in forty eight, when the state of Israel was created, there was a law that if you were not in your house on May fifteenth, nineteen forty eight, you lose the right to your house and to the country. So he was, and actually nobody was in his house in nineteen forty eight, even the Israelis. But the law was not applied on them because. Uh, the whole the whole youngsters of Israelis were, were fighting, they were not in their homes. But nonetheless, this is another thing. So crossing the border and, and trying in order to, to meet 
the loved one created a story which I think is is parallel to the story of the loss which we find which what happened in 1948 so there is this parallel between loss hatred and love and I think love even if it doesn't win in politics uh, but but love wins in our souls and this is this is what I tried uh, to do actually I didn't do anything the, this is what the the characters tried tried to do in in their very long interesting story one of your techniques is to start at the end why do you start at the end of your stories and work backward because actually the beginning is the end I mean you cannot tell a story if it didn't happen you know th there is a very interesting book by by Edward Said called which is called beginning beginnings where he speaks about how books begin and in really books begin in the end this is one thing the other thing my style I'm not telling you a story you don't know even if you don't know anything about these guys uh, or the place I'm telling you a story clearly you know but when you read it you go deep down to the experience to the human experience and I think this is the most intriguing thing in literature and really, really, readers read books they have read. We don't read Shakespeare because we want to know what happened to Hamlet. We don't read literature because we want to know what happened. Not bad literature, but this is a literature of, of consumption. We read literature in order to discover once again, and every time we read, we discover different things. Discover something about ourselves? Right. Yes. Some, mainly something about our, ourselves. In, in the Arabian Nights, Apart from the idea of telling, there is another idea, which is of traveling. Sindibad will travel, and then he comes back to tell the story of his adventures. But actually, when we read the adventures of Sindibad, what is interesting is not the adventures themselves. What is interesting is what the adventures open in him, which reveals to us the human experience and the human soul, and in, in that sense, what it reveals to us about ourselves. So actually, when we read, we read, we, di we discover ourselves. This is, I, I think, this is the major uh, issue of literature. I think we discover ourselves, but the reason that we're reading and l trying to learn about the human condition is so that we can be happier. You know, the term happy is a very... It is. It's an American term. <laughs> it's a very, it's a the very, pursuit of it. No, it's a very... I mean, uh, questionable term. What motivates us to want to discover? I guess that's my question. No, our, our motivation to discover is pleasure. Or happiness. No, pleasure. Pleasure, uh, uh, Aristotelian term, that is the pleasure of the mind and the soul. And I think this is a major part of, of the human nature. To escape suffering? You know, sometimes when we read, we suffer a lot, not to escape suffering, to understand and uh, to, uh, to fill the time with meaning. In the last analysis, literature is an attempt uh, to give meaning to something which is meaningless. Our life is meaningless, is absurd. What are you talking about religion as well? It's just, that's what religion does. Yeah, of course, but, but I, I, I think religion failed. Uh, religion failed because religion was, from the beginning, 
used as a tool of uh, national or power. ethnic or of power. Yeah. Totally. Literature cannot work with power. No. I mean, uh, even when there were attempts to put literature inside the power structure, it didn't work. And it, uh, it doesn't interest power, and, and, and literature is not interested uh, by power. Literature Although the Bible is pretty wonderful literature. I think it's an excellent I think, I, as I told you when I spoke about the Old Testament, I think, I think in the Bible there are there are uh, books that are uh, from the best literature of the world. I, I, I think I think of Job, for example. Yeah, Song of, I, Song of Solomon. I, I think of Solomon. I think of uh, of the Psalms of David. I think there are things that are incredibly profound. But how it was used afterwards, how it was put together, and, and so on and so forth. This is another story which, which is related to all religions, I suppose. The Quran is very beautiful literature. I mean, the stories of the Quran are, are, are marvelous. But also, the same thing. And of course, the story of Jesus is a beautiful story. It's a very, the New Testament, these four books, that is to relate the same story from four points of views. This was the, the first, uh, I think, uh, nouveau roman, uh, new ways of, of writing a story. I think this is marvelous literature. Lawrence Durrell did with Durrell did with right. uh, uh, Alexander. Alexandria, with, right. Yeah. If you can separate this literature from the power, the religious literature from the power of, from power structures, then it's literature like any other literature, and it is marvelous. But if we, if it's put in the power structure, look where where it leads the world. I mean, the most savage wars in history, I'm not speaking only about now, I'm speaking throughout history, were, were religious, the religious wars. Whereas there are no literary wars. I've never heard of any literary war. And, unless, of course, you classify the feuds between authors as wars. No, the feuds between authors are... To no, keep no. the gossip columnists... No, 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 no. This is one thing. They, they, they represent the human, the human weakness. Because actually... Uh, authors fight between themselves, uh, thinking about about eternity, who will stay, uh, whose name will stay, and and every time there is a quarrel like that, and I tell my my friends, look, we will know who is the author who will stay after our one hundred years after our death, when we will not be able to do anything. So it's 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 a meaningless fight. Perhaps you could uh, take us then to to the story of the novel. Uh Gate of the Sun, and I'm speaking with Elias Khoury. Uh, could you give us, uh, our listeners, a, just a brief overview of the book itself? Uh, the book, as I said, is a love story. It happens. The book takes place in a, in a hospital in, in the Shatila refugee camp in, uh, in the outskirts of Beirut. Eunice, who is an old uh, man, is in a coma, and Khalil, who is a doctor, or nearly a doctor, uh, is trying to treat him. Khalil is treating uh, Eunice through telling him stories, and Khalil will tell Yunis the story of Yunis himself. That is the story of his love story to Nahila, who is his wife, who was left behind in Galilee, which became Israel, and how Yunis used to cross the Lebanese-Israeli borders to meet her, and every time you cross the border, there is danger on your life. So every time you are paying your life for love, or there is a big possibility that you die because you love, and Yunus became a mythical uh, hero of the Palestinian struggle. And in one of the dialogues, when Khalil was, was relating to him his story, he remembers what Yunus told him. 
He told him, I did not go to, Pal to, to Galilee for the homeland. I used to cross the borders for love, because I was a lovely woman. Parallel to this, there is another love story taking place between Khalil and Shams. And uh, it is a modern story, which is not romantic at all. Uh, uh, and the two stories are like parallel mirrors reflecting the whole uh, history of about seven villages in northern Galilee, in the Akka district, telling actually what happened in 1948. That is what, what the Palestinians call the Nakba, the disaster. And this is the first novel uh, written about the details of the Nakba of 1948. And in order to write the whole thing, it took me seven years. And it took me a lot of research uh, and working with uh, refugees on their oral history. A very interesting story that happened was when this book was translated to Hebrew. It was very well uh, received on the literary level. And then one uh, Israeli historian wrote an article in Haaretz telling the readers not to believe the massacres I'm telling in the, in the book because they were not told by, written by Israeli historians. Three months ago, Ilan Pape, who is an Israeli new historian, published a new book in London entitled uh, The uh, Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. And in one of the chapters, he speaks about one of the, the village of Yunus, which is Ainaz Zaytun. And to speak about the massacre which took place in Ainaz Zaytun, he began by referring to the Gate of the Sun, and then by proving what I've collected through oral history from Israeli documents. <laughs> you have called Palestine a condition. I wonder if you can clarify that. No, I think, I think the, Palestinian tra the Palestinians went through a huge tragedy, but this tragedy, tragedy was never recognized. It, it was never recognized because it was, under, it was shadowed by another tragedy, which is the tragedy that the Jews went through uh, during during the Second World War with the with the atrocities of, of the Holocaust and the, the gas chambers and the final uh, uh, the Hitlerian diabolic uh, uh, final solution. So there is a tragedy which is not recognized by anybody, and it was very difficult for a Palestinian to tell anybody about his tragedy because nobody was ready, not to believe him, but not to hear. Nobody was ready to hear him. The same, I think it's the same sense that when, after World War II, Marguerite Duras was asked, the French novelist Marguerite Duras, Marguerite Duras was asked, uh, uh, what are you? She replied, I'm a Jew. And she was not a Jew. But after World War II, if you are a human being, you must be a Jew. Otherwise, you don't have any, any human feeling. I think Palestine is the same thing, in the sense that I've, I'm Palestinian because the Palestinians went through this tragedy, and it became a condition because it is a double tragedy. It's a real one, and it is a tragedy about the story itself, because the story is not recognized and is not permitted. And although many Palestinian writers wrote hints about the Nakba, about 1948, it happened that this is the first uh, novel ever written that speaks in the details of the catastrophe without any uh, heroic heroism, which I, I, I hate heroism, by, by, by the way. I don't think there are heroes at all. Uh, we are all alike, and, and it depends on which conditions we go, and so on and so forth. An attempt to discover this tragedy, and, and, and in this sense, I felt, I felt 
that Palestine is a condition, is one of the conditions of our human nature. Again, a sort of a universal condition. Right. Now, I've met people who still have the keys to their houses. Right. And me too. The houses that were uh, confiscated from them. And there is a moving scene in the book where two women get together, a Jew and uh, a Palestinian. And the Palestinian comes back to her home and there's an earthenware jug that is in exactly the same place as in 1948 when there she was... She left. Yeah, she left. Yeah. That's a very powerful, not even a metaphor, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of an, a, the key is a very, uh, an, an earthenware. It's, it's a very uh, concrete thing that we can relate to quite powerfully because it's, it's an object that, particularly the key, the fact that this belongs to us and you've taken it away from us, and I often think of this, this quarrel as being very childish. It's something, some, a toy has been, it's much more than a toy, but it's something's been taken away and it's not fair and, and it needs to be given back. Is it as simple as that? It is very simple and it's very complicated. I mean, there is something, if you, if you go to cities like Haifa now, or Yaffa or West Jerusalem to in West Jerusalem to, to neighborhoods as Katamun and Talbiot and so on, which were Arabic uh, neighborhoods before 1940, Palestinian neighborhoods. This, the houses are the same. That is, if you are a Palestinian, you could go and see the house of your father or grandfather. It is the same. So and they are still and they are living in the same houses. In the villages, they destroyed. The, the Israelis actually destroyed mainly all of the villages, ex- for, for one or two exceptions. One of them is Zahim Hood, which is now a village of Israeli artists, which, because there was a Dadaist uh, architect from, uh, from Romania, whose name is Yanko, who discovered it, and he wanted it. And it was given as a village for, 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 the, for the artists. But mainly the villages were totally destroyed, whereas the cities, were not destroyed. So, so Israelis are living in the same houses. Technically, I'm not. I'm not. It's not a metaphor. It's no. a, a, re, a reality which, Physical, yeah. which anyone can go and see it. And I've, 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 I've met many, many, many Palestinians who visited their homes and spoke with Israelis. And uh, so, this is something terrifying. I mean, terrifying or yeah. infuriating. Both. You know, I, I come to NYU uh, only one one semester and. They give me a furnished apartment normally. And all the time I feel this is not mine. I'm, I'm sleeping not in my bed, so I have to be very careful. And really, I don't feel at home. I, I want to ask also <laughs> a human question, how do they feel at home? This is the simple part of it. The complicated part of it is that not only the Palestinians, the Palestinians lost their country, but they also lost their name. You know, the Palestinians have struggled for, for 25 years to gain their name to be recognized as Palestinians. In 1969, the Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir was asked, what about the Palestinians? They said, there is nothing called Palestinians. So the struggle for the, for the name, that is the struggle for identity. And, and I think, although it's very tragic, and nobody can, can convince anyone whose house is, is in the hands of others that it's not a big tragedy, but 
I think there were no steps to find a human solution, a human political solution. On the contrary, instead of going to the two-state solution, which is not a just solution, but which is justice with a human level, I mean, with what we can do, I mean, with the real politics. Instead of that, look, look where we are. Look at the, at the settlements in the West Bank. Look at this insistence to continue occupation. And I think this is uh, uh, totally uh, absurd. And I'm sure in 100 years from now, when there will be a solution, because nothing can stay like this, there will be a solution and there will be a Palestinian state. Our, our grandchildren will look back and think how stupid they were. It's a very complicated so, uh, problem, but also any complicated problem can be solved in very simple terms. And all this, I don't want to enter into politics, but all this debate now about, about the Arab initiative and, and about the Arabs asking for the implementation of the uh, United Nations uh, Resolution 181, which is the right of the uh, refugees to go back or for indemnities. You know, it says not go back. It says go back or indemnities. I think, I think the way it's discussed is disgusting. The Palestinians, the refugees, have the right, if they are not given the right to go back to their homes, have the right to build homes in Palestine, in the West Bank, which is not given to them. So the feeling, I can understand the feeling when, when the key is there is unbelievable. And what, what the Israelis tried to do all these 60 years was to destroy the Palestinian memory. A country, Israel is a country based, if there is any legitimacy of Israel, it's based upon the Jewish memory of the Holocaust. This is the only human explanation for all that injustice that happened in Palestine. So a country based upon memory, its, its w work is to prevent its victims from memory. So I think this is absurd. You're suggesting that the, the accusation is that they're, they're basically uh, raining on the Palestinians the same kind of pain and injustice that was rained upon them. If not the same kind, you know, you know, not not the same degree. If not, no, no, it's not the same kind or degree or whatever. Because you know, someone will jump and say that uh, you know the Jewish experience is is unique. Yes. If they think it's unique, I respect that. Yeah. And I don't want to compare. I don't want to compare. But this is a, a big injustice, a big oppression, which the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians, and this must be admitted at least. And if there will be a solution, at least they must, this, they must say, we are sorry. They must feel sorry, at least. Yeah. Acknowledge. You acknowledge that, that there was a, that you created a catastrophe. At least so that the victim can accept uh, a reconciliation. I guess the irony is that the uh, Israelis, uh, or the, uh, again, I'm not that terribly well versed in the politics, but the Hamas... Part of their platform is that they're not willing to uh, or acknowledge the existence of an Israeli state. Right. But when the when when the Palestinians were led by someone who accepted and recognized the existence of the Israeli state, mm -hmm. it was the same behavior. I'm sorry, you know, using every time you find you find a, a way in order not uh, not to not find a solution. And when the PLO uh, recognized Israel, 
and accepted the existence of the State of Israel and accepted that the Palestinians will only have 22% of their country, which is the West Bank and Gaza, this was not uh, done. So this is, this is ridiculous, and I think, you know, if you push someone to the corner and then you, you, you expect from him not to become mad, because I think, I think the, the suicide bombing in, in, against civilians in Israel, and in Israel itself, uh, is madness. And I, I don't agree with it, and I wrote with it in Arabic. I'm not, I wrote it in Beirut, and it was published in Ramallah. Uh, but when you push someone to become mad, and you don't, you don't take any responsibility for his madness, then I think this is very cynical and, and very, very savage. Getting back to the uh, Thousand and One Nights, right. one of the uh, purposes of stories is that it can defer death. Yes. Do you see this character in uh, Gate of the Sun, and I'm speaking with Elias Khoury, as um, telling the stories to defer the death of the person that's in the coma? Of course not. Because, of course not, because also in one thousand and one night, deferring death is not preventing it from happening. Deferring death is is based upon the idea that once you have a story, then the story, even if death will come, will survive. The story will survive. Right. Yes. And and if you if the story will survive, then this is life. This is how life continues. So in this sense, yes. It is deferring death, but nothing can stop death, except no. except we can we can prévoir. I'll say this in English. Tame. Huh? Tame. No, not tame. If you have a wild animal, and then it becomes domestic. Yeah. Domestific. Domest tame. Tame or or domesticate. Yeah. Same. It is a way of domesticating death, not of <laughs> of <laughs> eliminating. Yeah. Yeah. The, I guess the question is, to, will telling the story give Palestine back to the Palestinians? Telling the story will give the Palestinians the right to tell. And, you have, and if you have the right to tell, then this is the first step to have all the other rights. If you have the right to your story, if you have the right to your language, if you have the right to your memory, then you exist. And if you exist, then this is, I suppose, a step towards achieving the conditions of human existence. Speaking of, uh, of language, some have suggested that you're a, a, a pan-Arabist whose center is based on linguistic unity. How would you respond to this who, identification? Who, who is the Arabic language is one language, uh, which have different languages. If you now, we must be a little bit here sophisticated. It is, we have the Arab tongue, there is one Arab tongue, and there are different Arabic languages, if you want to use the linguistic terminology. Mm -hmm. Different Arab languages means that there are different ways of speaking Arabic and of writing Arabic even, but they are all Arabic which is different from the relationship between Latin and the different European languages. This comparison is not, is not uh, workable because we are coming from another linguistic heritage, which is the Semitic heritage, where 
if you take the uh, other Semitic languages, if you take if you take Syriac, for example, you have literally and you have spoken, and they are correlated and different in the same time. This is the situation of Arabic. <laughs> so if you are a, an Arab from uh, the Levant, from Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine, your dialect is different from the Egyptian one, and the Egyptian dialect is different from the North African one, but nonetheless, they, they, they are all writing the same, the same language, and this is not new. This is from the pre-Islamic times. I mean, this is, this is all the history of Arabic language. Now, in modern times, because of the, of the effect of the European idea of the state-nation, which, which is based upon, upon many elements, one of them is, lang- is, is unified linguistic structures, like in French, for example. And, and the model, the French model is a dominant one of the state-nation, the nation. I think that the, uh, the Arab, uh, some tendencies in Arabic literature, tried to suppress the dialectical, tried to suppress the spoken from penetrating the high, uh, pure, pure language. Now, my work in my novels is the contrary to that. My work in my novels is to enter the syntax of the spoken in the written and, and to, to, uh, to uh, uh, open the written to the spoken in a sense that when you read me in Arabic, I, I work a lot on, on, on language, on the language, like, like all, all writers, I mean, this is, this is our job. Mm. Uh, if you read me in Arabic, you will discover how many layers of linguistic uh, levels are there, and they are correlating together. And yesterday there was a debate here about language, and I was uh, attacked that I use a lot of colloquial, and not, not like Nagib Mahfouz, for example, who insisted on the uh, high uh, literary language, and I said that I don't like the language of Nagib Mahfouz, I think it's very pl- flat, mm. and I think that Entering the colloquial in the spoke in the written, entering the spoken in the written, is creating a new Arabic language, which doesn't mean that then the language was, will will be destroyed in different languages. It will stay one language, but it will stay one language with different ways. And this is this is what I defend. So it's not Arabism at all. It's on the contrary. And I'm very much I, I like very much the reactions I have and some. Uh, Critical uh, works on um, on on my on my novels written in North Africa, where they have another uh, uh, dialect, and how they deal with the linguistic innovations that I'm trying I'm trying to do, and I think they are these are um, accepted, understood, and considered to be a kind of revolutionizing the language itself. Your uh, your support of the Palestinians. How do you think that's affected Lebanon? My support, your support, personally, I mean. and your position as a as an acclaimed author. When when I began, when I supported the Palestinians, I was not uh, an acclaimed anything. I was just a young man who felt that uh, there is a big injustice uh, which is falling upon the Palestinians. And my role as a human being was to help the Palestinians, because when I visited the camps in uh, in Jordan, because there was a new. Uh, flow of, of refugees after 1967, uh, I really felt. Uh, at that time, I was, you know, I'm coming. I come from a Christian family, and all these Christians' ideas about justice and so on and so forth. I was 18 years old. 
uh, told me that I have to stay with these people because they are the poor, they are the, 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 the ones that are, are destroyed, they, uh, they are the ones that are not recognized. And I felt that I have to identify with them just without any political background. For me, it was not political. Palestine began with me only as a human reaction to the fact of the refugees. Then, to, to comfort the afflicted is what you felt. Right. This is this is how it began. Now, of course, with with age and with you know, you become mature, and every time you become mature, you become worse. I mean, you enter the political uh, you know discourse, and all political discourses are are ways of manipulation, and so less idealistic. Uh, yeah, of course, uh, not at all idealistic. They destroy ideals. Yeah. In the name of ideals, they come and destroy and destroy the ideals, and then Lebanon went through the civil war. Now, in the, in the Lebanese civil war, where Palestinians were part of it, but the Lebanese civil war was not only a Palestinian affair. It was, it was a real uh, Lebanese problem, because in 1860, uh, when there was the biggest civil war in the history of the country, uh, there were no Palestinians at that time, no, no Palestinian refugees. The Palestinians were in Palestine. And after the Palestinians left the country in, uh, in 1982, after the Israeli invasion, the civil war became much more savage. So there is a Lebanese problem. And here, as a Lebanese, I tried, uh, in the beginning of the war, in the first two years of the war, which was a clear war between the left and the right and the fascists. Of course, I was anti-fascist. I cannot be a fascist. Communist. Yeah. Who? You. I was never communist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, if I were communist, I would have be proud of it. Don't worry. I'm, uh, I, I, no, no, I was never a communist. Because when I have... When, my when you were young, you were an idealist, and uh, no, that I, communism I, is quite an ideal... Uh, no, communism was not... Uh, when I was young, we, we are the generation of the 60s, of, of May 68, uh, uh, and of Che Guevara, and the communists were no more an ideal. The ideal was something else. We were with uh, the image of Guevara and Vietnam, and uh, the students of Paris who were mostly anarchists, not, not, not communists, by the way. So... Uh, my choice was, of course, with the Lebanese left uh, against the fascists, and then with the developments of the civil war when, it, when, when the Syrians entered. And the, it, it's a long thing. I, I will not tell you the whole story of, a, of, a, of an endless story, unfortunately. My job was to try to find ways to stop the civil war. This is what I tried to write about and I tried to do, and I'm still trying to do, because we are now afraid that the civil war can, can emerge at any moment. Now, in 2005, when uh, the Lebanese made their father uh, their of independence their, and, and, uh, and pushed the Syrian army outside the country, at that time I was in New York, because I, I teach at, in this semester, I left New York to go and join the demonstrations in the streets of Beirut. And then uh, my friends, my closest friend was assassinated by the Syrians, who is a journalist and historian, who is Samir Asir. So, but the Lebanese tragedy is a big tragedy in itself. It's the tragedy of what is left from the, from the colonial system that uh, religious sects become political powers mm. and religious sects cannot make a country. This which that makes me sad all the time. Is this, this would be, a, you, know, you as a writer, this would be one of your primary objectives is to turn politics into a secular... This uh, is my, my primary objective as a, as, as a citizen. As a citizen. As I mean, a, and as a writer, your primary objective is to, is to help defend life. Yes. But as, as you know, I have written a lot about the civil war, 
some of them are in English, but now they are coming out uh, once again because they were first uh, published by a by Minnesota University Press, and when you are published in University Press, it's as if you are not published. <laughs> <laughs> now, Picador is taking them, uh, and they will publish them in, in October. Uh, now, I wrote a lot about the Lebanese civil war, about the Lebanese uh, situation, and also my writing about Lebanon and the Lebanese civil war were from the perspective of the marginals of the Lebanese society. So one of my ma- major characters are shoe shiners and, and uh, prostitutes and poor people and so on and so on. Just in closing, I wonder if you could uh, just briefly mention and talk about um, the very fact that Palestine was occupied helps Palestinians to discover who they are. No, this is the paradox of it. I mean, I mean, the whole Levant, the whole Orient, this, this history of this part of the world is very, very complicated because during the World War I, there was a revolt which was called the Great Arab Revolution. And at the end of it, uh, the uh, people of what we call Bilat Sham, which is the Levant, Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine, and Jordan, made a, a conference by, representative, by elected representatives, and they declared themselves as one kingdom, as one country. But of course, and, and they were the allies of the British, uh, uh, because they revolted against the Ottomans during the First World War. But the British, who were allied with the Arabs, were also allied with the French, and were also allied with the with the Zionists. So, at the same time, they promised the, the Arabs a united country in the Levant. Uh, they promised uh, the Zionists a, a Jewish homeland in Palestine, and they promised uh, France to give it Lebanon and Syria. So. <laughs> When the Palestinians were facing their fate alone, and they are peasants and, and, and facing something they couldn't face, and now, of course, the British laws of mandate were, were very, very strange, because the British laws, for example, Britain was, was governing also Jordan and Iraq. And in Jordan and Iraq, there was uh, a national, uh, they tried to create national uh, uh, state institutions. Whereas in Palestine, the British law was that the, the populations can be organized only on confessional terms. That is, the Jews can be organized together. The Arabs, who were Muslims and Christians, have to organize as Muslims and Christians. So the Arabs refused. This is why the Yeshuv, the, the Jewish uh, small state, mini-state under the British rule, uh, flourished, whereas the Palestinian Arabs had nothing, had no representation. And at that moment, the Palestinians were waiting that first they were still under this influence that they are part of this large Syria or large Levant, and uh, thinking that they cannot face this uh, huge uh, apparatus which was attacking them, which is the Zionist apparatus. Uh, so they were relying on their, on their, on their Arab uh, brothers. And then, actually, Palestine was 50% of the Palestinians were kicked from Palestine before the Arab Arabs entered the war, which is also uh, another thing which nobody speaks about. Everybody, the Israeli uh, uh, historians and propaganda says that the Palestinians fled when the Arab Arabs entered. Actually, the pal- half of the Palestinian refugees problem took place before the Arabs entered the war, and then the Arabs did not fight, did not have an army, did not have armies, actually. And one of the myths of Israel is that Israel small, the Israelis were 600,000. They were attacked by seven armies. 
and, and the, 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 the David won upon Goliath. This is the myth. Actually, in 1948, the Israelis had 80,000 soldiers. And all the Arab armies with the Palestinians, they had less than 40,000. So they were double in, and not to speak about technology and, and so on and so forth. So the Palestinians felt themselves alone, and they began to discover that this loneliness is the basis of their identity. And I think this is identity. That is when you feel you are alone. When, if I'm here, if I come to Canada and uh, nobody, I'm, I'm very well accepted, then I will not think that uh, I am an Arab all the time. But if I am persecuted what, in the airport and everywhere and everywhere, then they push you to become, to have an identity. They push you to identity, to this one identity thing. So I think the Palestinian identity was an, an outcome of the disaster because in the surrounding countries, that is in Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, there is no such... I cannot speak about a Lebanese identity the same way as in Palestinians or a Jordanian or a Syrian because here things are floating, you know, you are, you are okay, and we think that we don't know we are Arabs and we are Lebanese and what does this mean? But for the Palestinians, if they are not Palestinians, they are nothing. So in this sense, the loss of Palestine accelerated this national identity process. Am I clear? Yeah, I think so. The fact that, uh, that well, I and mean, it's funny because you, you look at Palestinians and they're concerned that they're being um, abandoned by the Arabic world. Not only abandoned the Palestinians. You know, every time I'm asked about this book, I say this book is a love message to the Palestinians because in the Arab world, everybody loves Palestine and they hate the Palestinians. Myself, I'm on the contrary. I love the Palestinians. This is my issue. My issue is not Palestine. My issue is the Palestinians. Yeah, it's difficult to love uh, a state and much easier to love a person. No, it's impossible to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, unless you're nationalistic. <laughs> you know, a state is not to be loved. And, and uh, here I remember a, a very famous phrase of the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish when, when he says that we want to have a Palestinian state in order to hate it, <laughs> to be able to hate it. <laughs> well, I think the more people get exposed to your work, the more they will love it. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. I thank you.